Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Mrs. Mathis, in her deposition, was asked, how many years are you married to Mr. Mathis? Her answer was 52 years, six months, two weeks, three hours, and 50 minutes. And of course, you just sit there and let the silence build for a few, you know. Yeah. That was kind of like, my work, my work's done here. Please rise, court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? Um, I don't think our listeners want to hear me rant about daylight savings, but <laughs> we are recording the Monday after daylight savings. And so I just got to quickly off. say, I'm not going to go through my whole rant, but I really hate it. <laughs> well, so, you know, it's funny about that is um, uh, my wife was actually just talking about how there's a bill in Georgia to, uh, I guess, permanently keep daylight saving. I guess we would say on the time we're on now, right? Well, so I heard that there's two versions. There's one that came out of the house to stay on what we're on now. Right. And then there's one that came out of the Senate. I'm not sure which is which, but one came out that was like, let's stay on what we're on now. And the one came out of the Senate saying, let's stay on what it was before or whatever. So there's actually two (laughs) that propose. And we just got to decide which one we want. I don't care as long as it doesn't change twice a year. But I, and, and I mean, I, I'm glad we're starting the podcast with this just fascinating (laughs) subject, Uh, but uh, really original. No one's ever complained about this before, (laughs) but I, I understand that the problem with it is or the, or the potential problem with it is uh is hartsfield is uh the airport because oh. it's uh, such a busy airport that if they aren't linked up with everybody else and it'll it could uh screw up flight times i guess yeah so, i uh, mean when you hear about like those cities or towns or whatever that don't have that don't do it or that um you know are like close to the border of where times change that always seems like it would be like time zones change that always seems like it would be really complicated. So I know I'm oversimplifying it, but that Sunday morning when I've lost an hour and it's dark, I just, it makes me so cranky. It just, it just throws you off. Well, I I don't want to, I don't want to keep, we'll bring our guests on and and we will hear, uh, we'll hear Don Hinkle's uh, take on his thoughts on on daylight saving. So uh, let me welcome to the podcast, Don Hinkle, who is a senior partner in Hinkle and Ferran uh, based in Tallahassee, Florida. And you can look up Don at HinkleFerran.com. That's H-I-N-K-L-E-F-O-R-A-N.com. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, in Tallahassee, we are very close to the central time zone, and it is a constant source of confusion and issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I understand that, I mean, you know, I, I probably know too much. It's just because my wife, she really wants to do away with one or the other like Avando's. But um, uh, I, I heard that Florida is considering a similar bill to what Georgia is. I think I think this, the states are Georgia- Florida, maybe Alabama, maybe uh, um, North Carolina or South Carolina. I can't remember, but the southeastern states. That sounds like Georgia may be moving at a half hour. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be. I'm, that's, I'm sure the that's compromise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll take right. it. Right. I'll take whatever I can get. Just as long as you don't have to change ever again. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Just just so long as I don't have to get up earlier then I already have to get up. It's the losing yeah. sleep that just really, yes. yeah, just the one pain. time I know. I've, I know that's not what this show is about. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. I mean, this is a special show on the on daylight savings. Surprise, uh, listeners. Yeah, exactly. No law today. <laughs> 
Just kidding. Right, we right. actually have um, we have something exciting to talk about today, different than our usual. But I want to get ahead of our, ourselves. Yes, Steve. yes, yes. I mean, we'll, we'll we will uh, uh, tell everybody that we're going to be talking about our first federal tort claims act case. So, uh, so there's a lot of differences in in a normal trial that you have in a FTCA case, and so we'll be talking about that. But let me first tell everybody a little bit about Don and his uh, background. As I have already said, uh, Don is a is a partner in the law firm of Hinkle and Ferran. He's in Tallahassee, Florida. And, um, and, and, uh, I think Don, I mean, I was looking at your list of accomplishments and awards and you, you won just about every award. I feel like it's out there. Uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, Don is a seasoned trialer, had, uh, many, many, uh, just tremendous verdicts. And, um, but let me go through some of the things. So Don, uh, went to both, uh, Florida state, or went to Florida state for both undergrad and law school. So does that make you a double null? Is that what they call you or what do they? Actually, a triple one. I went to their uh, demonstrations in high school. So, oh wow! Okay. <laughs> and yeah, we're a basketball and, school now. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> um, and, and Don is a board certified trial lawyer by the Florida Bar and a board certified trial lawyer by the National Board of Trial Advocacy. Uh, AV rated lawyer uh, was named Lawyer of the Year in 2010 by the best lawyers in America, been named as a legal elite, uh, uh, Florida legal elite, uh, been named many times as a super lawyer. Uh, one of the, the names of the awards that I, I really uh, liked was the Shoe Leather Award, uh, which means that I guess you were pounding the pavement a lot and just and, and working hard. Um, you've lobbying. been, uh, go, sorry, go ahead, Don. I'm sorry, that was lobbying the legislature Back in the day, I, I try to stay away from there now. Oh, I know. I mean, we, we, we've all all been there and it's not always the uh, most pleasant job. So uh, um, we, uh, the has uh, been the uh, president of his uh, his chapter of the American Board of Trial Advocates uh, three times and uh, been given the Civility Award by ABOTA, uh, won the uh, the Crystal Eagle Award for a Lifetime Accomplishment, uh, was the president of the Tallahassee uh, Bar Association, uh, is on the board of the United Way. And did I, are you a, a professor at, at Florida State currently? And not currently, I've adjunct over the years from time to time. Okay. 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 Well, you, you may have uh, taught our, our old associate, uh, Christy Davies. Uh, uh, now I just totally blanked on Christy's uh, name Sweat. before she got married. Sweat. That's right. Christy Sweat. So she may have been a law student under you, Don. I don't know. Uh, but she uh, she was a, a tremendous lawyer with us. Um, and then I should finally uh, mention that uh, that Don's uh, sister, Jeannie Hinkle, is the uh, executive director of the Southern Trial Lawyers of America, which is another uh, fine group that... Uh, that we're all members of and, and enjoy going to the, uh, the various conferences. Can't wait to get back. Yeah, absolutely. 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 And Jeannie's awesome. So if she ends up listening, Jeannie, you're the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, as I said, we are talking about a Federal Tort Claims Act uh, case. And so we'll talk about that more in a second. But the name of the case is Mathis versus the United States of America. It was Grace Mathis as the personal representative of the estate of Ronald Mathis versus the United States of America that uh, came out of a medical malpractice case at the uh, 
the VA, the Veterans Affairs uh, Healthcare Center in Tallahassee, Tallahassee uh, Florida, um, and just a, uh, a, a terrible case for for uh, Ronald, uh, who was a 72-year-old uh, veteran. I, I think he was a 100% disabled, and I didn't I didn't see why, but I'm sure that was an issue during the case. Um, he went in for uh, a just a regular checkup exam. And so they did some blood work on December 29, 2017. And his white blood cell count uh, came out uh, very high, uh, 26.17, which is more than double uh, the normal levels. The doctor, uh, which was um, uh, Dr. Kimberly Cooper Dunn uh, at the VA, um, just missed it and and admitted that uh that she missed it didn't say anything about it that was a sign of uh chronic myeloid leukemia um so the the exam was on january the 5th 2018 and um nothing was done to follow up on what would have been essentially the early stages or the chronic phase of chronic myeloid uh, leukemia um and then by May of um, May 9 of 2018, uh, he was in into a, what's called a blast crisis. I think it was called acute myoblastic leukemia. And I guess the, the big difference between chronic myeloid leukemia is that that's got a fairly high survival rate if you treat it. And then if you a, acute myoblastic leukemia has got a very low survival rate. Uh, so he, he's uh, in a blast crisis as of May 9, 2018. And then uh, by May 27, 2018, so just a few weeks later, uh, passed away. So it was a wrongful death case against the... Uh, the United States of America, and we'll we'll talk about that some about the uh, Federal Tort Claims Act uh, case, but it was on behalf of um, uh, of his wife Grace, and then um, his adopted son and daughter, uh, who were his grandchildren, and um, we'll uh, talk about that a little bit too. And um, and you know, one of the things that I noticed, and we'll, and um, is that uh, the judge was extremely complimentary of the clients and how credible they came across. Um, so uh, I just noticed everybody froze on me. So I'm hopeful that you all caught all that. <laughs> we can we can hear you. We heard you. Okay, good, good. <laughs> I was looking at it and I see everybody's just staring at me. Um, so, <laughs> um, well, uh, Don. Uh, so, and then I, what I should say is that the the result, which was a uh, um, uh, an award by the judge, was uh, in non economic damages. Uh, sorry, in economic damages was three hundred twenty five thousand nine hundred sixty one dollars and seventy six cents, and then in non economic damages for Grace. Uh, Mathis was an award of $2.9 million. And then for the son was 750,000 and for the daughter was $750,000. So for a total award of $4,725,961 and 76 cents. Um, so Don, I mean, why don't we start off in talking about this is just explaining for our listeners, the difference between a federal tort claims Act case and, you know, really any other, uh, trial case. Sure. Well, you know, there was this concept of sovereign immunity that you can't sue the the sovereign. And that has been uh, altered in different ways in different places. Uh, you know, in Florida, you get a jury trial, but you can only collect a few hundred thousand dollars without going to the legislature. In other states, it's done differently. The federal government's approach was to say, you can sue us, 
but you're not going to get a jury. You're going to get a judge, right? Uh, a judge that's paid by the United States of America. So they feel they've got a little, uh, uh, you know, they're not going to get hit with the runaway uh, uh, verdict there. Right. And that changes the dynamic, your notice requirements and other technical uh, changes. And, and one of the unique things about the VA is if they accept that your death was related to your health care, it's, it's basically the same as if it was service-connected death and you continue, the widow continues to get all the benefits and the children. But then if you get a tort recovery, they get to stop paying you until they recover all the money in the tort recovery. So basically, um, once we collected on the judgment, uh, Mrs. Mathis stopped receiving her VA benefits. Uh, okay. So there's a, so I tried to explain to the judge that the first several hundred thousand dollars is really her money. Uh, right. Yeah. And you explained that in the, in your uh, brief to the judge about uh, the fact that there was going to be a significant set off. Um, so, so, you know, whatever uh, verdict that the judge gave, you would need to, uh, you know, the, as you just said, the, the first few hundred thousand was basically going to go back to the federal government. The, I think I handled, I thought about how to handle all that at trial and ended up with a uh, designee deposition of the Veterans Administration. And they designated this fellow in the middle of the bureaucracy in Philadelphia who did a great job of explaining this in a probably a 40 page deposition or less. Um, and so we put that in evidence to explain it. So I thought that was. Yeah. And Don, does it work that way? Does it only work that way if, because that was new to me. I, I I had done a FTCA case before against the VA, but I didn't know that. So does that only happen if they admit the the negligence? I guess if you apply for the benefits and they say yes, it was it was it was connected. It's like being service connected. If their lawyer, if their doctors kill you, it's yeah. I think. Okay, so if they basically accept that and start paying you, okay, got it. So, and, and, and that—that's one question I was going to ask Don. Is that so? They in in this case, the doctor admitted negligence, admitted that she missed the um, the white blood cell count and didn't uh, report it. And, and and what would have been done had she caught it is that he would have gone to a hematologist, would have started, uh, you know, gotten the diagnosis of chronic myeloid leukemia, then uh, started receiving the therapy and would have had a very good chance of survival. But I mean, so in order to get that, um, that benefit that you just described is, do they, is that admitting negligence part of it? Or is it just that they admit that it happened during healthcare? It, it was actually that part's administrative. Okay. We sent in the application for those benefits and I attached the affidavit from my expert and it happened administratively in the lawsuit part of it, she didn't really, she didn't want to admit that she was liable. Um, one of the unique things about a Federal Torts Claims Act that I like is that it's defended by an assistant United States attorney. And they tend to be more, um, I guess, they look at the facts and they make their decisions based on the facts and the law. And they're not as creative in coming up with defenses. I don't know how to say yeah. this. Politely. No, you, the fact is, we deal with medical malpractice insurance carriers, and they would have defended this case to the 
nth degree, even though their doctor was saying, I have no reason I missed this. It's, you know, inexplicable. Yeah. Um, one of the things she had, I'd gone through her past employment and she had left every job she had because it was a hostile work environment. Oh. And then she came to this part and she said she didn't know, she didn't see the white blood count. Had she seen it, she would have done something about it. She doesn't know why she didn't see it. And I suggested, well, perhaps it was, um, she'd also testified she had a, a hostile work environment at the VA. And she kind of jumped on that lifeboat and said, that's why she didn't see it. So it was <laughs> VA connected. Um what, did she just say what the hostility was that would cause her to miss this, you know, high white blood cell count, which is something you hope every doctor is checking for? I, no. Um, <laughs> you know. I was wondering about that. I saw that and I thought maybe she meant um, like if she was if she was talking about, you know, just the VA being like short staffed or, or, or something like that. But she was describing more of a traditional sort of employment so it sounds like you had kind of basically found out that that had been an issue for her in the past. And she jumped on that again. Yeah. And she had filed complaints with the VA about employment and such. Um, so she was, a, uh, you know, and I don't want to just, you know, dismiss it may have been true, but yeah. Right. Spring of bad luck everywhere she worked, she was discriminated against and, and she might've been, but, but yeah, she said that was a distraction that it wasn't a good work environment and, yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah. one of the questions I had was, I, I feel like, um, you know, and I don't know if maybe a part of it is the system that, that they have at the VA or like, like when I get my labs done at my doctor and I can check it on an app, like if I'm outside of a normal range on anything in my labs, like it's red, you know, it like pops up. And so I'm, it surprises me that there isn't some kind of system like that, that alerts the physicians or nurses to something like that when you have a lab that's that high. Right. This is an interesting part of this case is about, uh, it has to be 10 or 15 years ago, I handled a VA case involving uh, missed prostate cancer where the veterans PSA went up every single visit for like three or four years on a straight up traje trajectory. And the problem was he would go to his doctor, he'd see the doctor, they'd do the lab work, and then he'd go home for a year and nobody would ever look at the lab work. So part of the settlement we had was I talked to the VA about this and they said they would change their system so that you did the blood work before you went to see the doctor, which makes a lot of sense. Right. And that's what they did in this case. <laughs> But then she never looked at it. There would have been a flag in the system. The only thing I could figure out was that the first thing she looked at was the first page of the labs was uh, because he was diabetic, was his blood sugars. And then the next page had it flagged. Okay. Maybe okay. go back two pages. Maybe she was busy. Maybe she's just sloppy. Yeah. yeah, you know, because it's um, just as Yvonne was saying there, you know, we've looked at plenty of labs in medical malpractice cases and at our own, but I mean, they always, you know, flag it or at least put an H next to it, you know, showing that it's high. So it, it's not like it's something hard to um, to spot. I mean, you you just basically look down for the H's and then see what it is. So I, there, there really is no excuse for missing it. It wasn't high enough that the lab would have called because that was okay. one of was maybe the laboratory should have called. Uh, but it, I, I researched that 
you know, pretty thoroughly on the internet. And it wasn't quite at the level where there was a consensus that you call, uh, but it still would have been flagged as high and it still was quite abnormal. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. The doctor I saw, she admitted um, that that was the highest she had ever seen in her career. He said that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, and you. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, it, Steve, it makes me think of that, the um, case we were talking to Dan Huff about, you know, where it was the, he was defending the radiologist, I think, but, you know, it's sort of like, you don't, at least for me, I don't really expect for a lab to, to sort of flag my results, whatever they are, but I do expect my doctor to do it, you know? Right. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, they um, ended it, but I, they, at the end, they gave up. It was, which was so smart. They didn't want to make the judge mad. Yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering about that. I, I really liked the the way, at least based on your opening outline, that you that you talked about that and how they basically shouldn't be rewarded for that. But before before they 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 admitted that, what was their defense, or were they just stalling? I think they were trying to find an expert, and I, they were also. Um, their big defense, of course, was life expectancy. Right. Um, he'd had two open heart surgeries, stents, diabetic, you know, had a series of heart conditions. Um, he had had a severe infection while he was service in the service and lost uh, hearing and some of his jaw. And that was part of the, the total disability condition, uh, you know, but, a you know, very wonderful human being and, and had a... Um, you know, was working around the house and doing those kind of things. But that that would have been they had. Um, I forget the name of the expert right now. Uh, life expectancy expert, which we all. Know, oh, yeah. Um, uh, who was going to say is four or five years and then the normal tables for 
and we compromised in the middle because I did not want that to be an issue in the case. And yeah, I didn't want to talk about his pre-existing health conditions. I didn't want to talk about his future frailties that, you know, if he would have gotten worse with those things. So just to take all those issues off the table, I, I agreed to their economists and I agreed to their compromise, the life expectancy, uh, uh, which could have cut yeah. both away, but it, it, uh, it could have cut against them for raising it, but it could have cut against me for, um, yeah. Reducing yeah. it, so. Well, and you did, you stipulated to, I think, nine and a half years of life expectancy. And, uh, and you sent us your outline for your opening statement to the judge. And I, I mean, it's exactly whenever you have an elderly client, it, it, you know, those years, when you only have a few years left, uh, those are the most important years. And, um, and those years are precious. Um, because, you know, when you're young, you think you've got the rest of your life. But when you're older, you know, you only have a few years left and the judge in his, um, in his opinion, really picked up on that and, uh, and talked about, you know, uh, how precious these years and, and how that, uh, grace, you know, was looking forward to, to having these, you know, special years just between her and Ronald, because they were coming towards the end of raising, uh, their adoptive, uh, uh grandkids or their, their children who were their, their grandchildren, um, uh, we're coming towards the end of that. So they were going to actually have some time when it was just them and be able to enjoy their retirement. Yeah, it was very sad. Um, yeah. it was interesting with the three different plaintiffs that recover and, and there were two, the three adult children. Uh, the father of the grandchildren was estranged. Um, the other two were, were very close to part of the family, but under Florida law, if you're over 25, you can't collect pain and suffering. So it's only two, two minors. But one of the interesting aspects of the case is that Mrs. Mathis was um, uh, kind of old school. You know, she didn't express herself really talk about emotions a lot, but it was very strong and very there. Uh, she didn't talk a lot. The son was really shut down. Uh, you know, he pushed everything down and I couldn't get him to say much at all. And then the younger, the daughter was very expressive, wants to be a psychologist, was very insightful and was my first uh, damages witness on pain and suffering because she could articulate how it was affecting everybody. Um, right. And then uh, I wanted to, to touch on this. The um, Mrs. Mathis in her deposition was asked, um, how long you've been married? How many years were you married to Mr. Mathis? Their answer was 52 years, six months, two weeks, three hours, and 50 minutes. Oh, wow. Wow. And, you know, she did that at trial. And of course, she just sit there and could let the silence build for a few, you know. Yeah. yeah. That was kind of like... My work, my work's done here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but, uh, well, but that was how much that meant to her. Yeah, really. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that, that, uh, that the son and, um, and, and the uh, grace weren't as expressive because we, to read the judge's order, uh, he was really uh, impacted by them and said, you know, basically what powerful witnesses they were. So I, I was, you know, just interested in hearing, you know, how you went about, you know, you know, we talk a lot about 
theming and, you know, cross exams and, and experts and stuff like that. But I mean, doing a good direct of a witness is, is, is difficult. And it's really, especially if they're somebody who is sort of, you know, not normally expressive, somebody who's sort of, sort of closed in about their emotions. Um, so I, I'd love to hear you just talk about, you know, how you went about preparing them for a direct examination and the impact that they had on the judge in this case, which seemed to be very strong. Yeah. Uh, two things. One was spending a lot of time uh, and getting to know them well. Uh, and, and because that gives you examples and things. The other was we used the photographs and I was, as a professional, I was very, it was very rewarding when the judge mentioned uh, with respect to the son that he was, that when the picture of his dad went up on the screen, he lit up and you can't fake that. And, and that was um, um, a matter of um, uh, uh, just making sure we had the right pictures in the right order and spent a lot of time on that. Um, and that was kind of guided us through was using the pictures uh, was the uh, mechanism I used with that. And then telling the story. When you, when you approached, you know, prepping them, uh, prepping your clients and thinking about what you were going to ask them on the stand, did you, did you change your approach or how you would have done things at all for the fact that it was going to be a judge instead of a jury or, or did you keep it the same? I, I, very much changed it in, in many respects, not so much with respect to that part of the damage as the emotional part, uh, because, you know, judges are human too. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of my brothers, so I have to. <laughs> right, right. He <laughs> really is a human. Yeah. <laughs> not everyone knows that. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, my very first speaking role in a courtroom as a lawyer was uh, in a bond hearing that my senior partner at the time, David Fonville, was handling. And my job was to read the answers on about a 40-page deposition uh, of the probation officer for our client. And never in the history of the federal judiciary had there been a better prepared uh, <laughs> person to read the answers uh, right. of the deposition in court. And about halfway through reading these answers, the, the federal judge, Judge Lynn Higby, who's a very strong personality, says, that's enough, Mr. Fonville. <laughs> and he goes, what? And the judge says, it doesn't take me long to look at a horseshoe. And Mr. Fonville <laughs> goes, what? And the judge says, it's a joke. And David turns red and looks up at the federal judge and said, nobody's joking here, Your Honor. This is my client's life. And the judge turns red and starts to sputter and then slams the gavel down and adjourns the hearing. And of course, you could have cut it with a knife. Oh, my goodness. In yeah. The courtroom. And uh, I'm thinking, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out about a joke about a little boy in a horseshoe and the dad says it's hot and the boy picks it up and he drops it right away because not because it's hot, because it doesn't take me long to look at a horseshoe. But what it taught me was. The judge doesn't want to hear somebody read a deposition. They can read it themselves. Right. So we introduced it, you know, and this is 30 years later. I'm still 40 years later. I'm still learning from that in the sense of making things very concise. My expert's deposition in this case, which I plan to use at trial, 
is only about 18 pages long. You know, who are you? What are your qualifications? What happened here? You know, and, and that's it. And uh, because I wanted to be able to play the whole deposition, I didn't have a whole lot of fluff in there. And and right. you read all the records. Yes. You know, that's let's move on. So uh, and I tried to. So it was a very short trial for that reason. But I deliberately made myself slow down when it came to the damages part, um, uh, because that's the part that, uh, you know, he really needed to connect with. And he did. Yeah. Yeah, clearly he did. I mean, I, the things he had to say in the transcript about his order, like Steve said, it was just, I mean, you kind of, you sort of dream of hearing those sort of comments from anyone, you know, even a juror, but for a, for a judge to say it as much things as, as judges see and how unemotional we tend to think of them anyway. Um, what a high compliment. And it must've been really special for your clients to hear what he had to say. Very perceptive because she turned to me when it was over in tears and said he could have stopped after his opening statement, you know, and I'd have been happy. Yeah. 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 I know you would have been, but I'm glad he kept going. <laughs> Got the yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, she was very moved by that. And it was very, very meaningful to her. Yeah. That he did that. Um more so than just the verdict and frankly, more so than a jury verdict would have been because yeah. there and, and say those things uh, was just phenomenal. And, and of course it made this order bulletproof, you know, when he, yeah, when you think, yeah. About it. But, uh, but he was, I mean, he was, you know, caught up in the emotion of it too, because it was, uh, it's was, it was, it was very real thing. Very sad. Yes, yeah. it's Steve. It made me think of so the only the only VA case that that I ever handled settled shortly before trial and 72 year old um, who had passed away. So the facts were somewhat similar, but it made me sometimes I like George George's wrongful death damages because they're, yes. you know, it's from the perspective of the decedent and the value of your life to, to that person who passed away. But this that was one time where I think it would have been really nice Um to have Florida's version so that, you know, the, the people who are left behind feel like they get to tell their story and, and be heard a little bit more. Um, yeah. You know, that's just, I feel like that's always tricky in, in Georgia death cases. One thing that threw me for a loop here a little bit was when I started putting together the damages part of the case, I did, I know what cases settle for, especially in North Florida and that type of thing. But we have these tobacco cases in Florida, which y'all have done. But um, the the damages are phenomenal. Um, And of course, the judge, one of the things he said was, this isn't a tobacco case. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because the liability is so aggravated. But there are all these $10 million verdicts for widows, which I didn't, you know, we didn't even think to ask for that much. Um, Right. But that yeah, helped, things, right? I mean, I'm sorry, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, it did. It made my award look very reasonable. Well, and, and that's what I was just going to mention that uh, one thing we didn't say about a Federal Tort Claims Act case is that before you file, you have to file uh, your Form 95. And in your Form 95, you have to put the, you know, essentially what value you're seeking in the case. And then the what you know about that is you can never exceed what you've asked for. So uh, I think you would put $6 million in there, um, which is, you know, for a wrongful death case is not, you know, some outrageous sum. It's a very reasonable sum. Um, 
So, um, you know, so you, I mean, and I, and I noticed that you made sure to put that in your brief to the judge and to your opening statements, like, you know, look, you know, we, we've only asked for 6 million. That's our, you know, reasonable amount. And uh, yeah, that's what we wanted. And that's yeah. what we asked for. And, and uh, uh, you know, that's always that dilemma. If you ask for a lot more, yeah. do you lose them and do you turn them off? And, and I had anticipated the life expectancy and his, you know, I'd expected to spend two or three days at trial talking about all his past medical care and those types of things. And we didn't. So that helped, you know, yeah. uh, a lot, but uh, yeah, but that was, um, I was viewing it from a perspective of what it, the other settlements were and would be a good resolution. I thought they'd pay it frankly, but. Yeah. I mean, I, it was, well, it was kind of a perfect amount because it was still, you know, it's still a very good award and what you got was a really good award, but it, it does make you seem very reasonable. It's not crazy. And, you know, that was one of the things when we got pretty close to getting ready to, to try that VA case that we had. And I had, I had no clue how to approach it. I mean, luckily it wasn't all down to me, but I, you know, thinking about damages, thinking about everything, presenting them to a judge feels totally different to me, you know, with a, with a jury, you feel like you've got to account for all these different things. And there's all these things that they expect to see in a trial that you feel like you've got to show them. And, and, and so much of that is out of the window when it's a judge. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll never forget. I tried a, a federal tort claims act case uh, involving a car accident with a with a postal truck, and um, and our client had been pregnant at the time, and and she ended up giving birth to a badly brain damaged child who had been because of the the accident. And I remember uh, that we brought our client, the, the the child who had by that time I think was about seven or eight, um, to um, the you know court so that the judge could see him and meet him. And he was kind of, he, I mean, uh, I, he, he wasn't all that interested in, in meeting him. He, he, he just basically said, okay, I've, I've met him now. You can, you can uh, let him leave the courtroom kind of thing. And, uh, and you're right. So, I mean, how you're, how you prove up your, your damages in a, in a case like that, you know, where it, you know, part of it is, you know, you've got your medical bills, but you've got your economists, you've got all those types of things. And the judge can go off of that. But, you know, at, at some point you want them to meet your client too, just so they can see what kind of condition he's in. Yeah. Um, Don, I meant to ask you, this is kind of off topic, especially since you didn't um, end up having to try the sort of medical negligence side of it. But was there any, I was wondering, cause I feel like it's always tricky when I'm like looking at potential, um, failure to diagnose cases that I'm going to have trouble establishing what would have happened if the diagnosis was made earlier. Was there anything like that in this case, as you were sort of leading up before they admitted negligence? Sure. And, 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 uh, we had Dr. Uh, Rossoff out in LA. He's an oncologist. He's been a really good expert for me, but he, he, he did a lot of work and, uh, he called it a miracle of, modern science, their ability to treat the CML and said it was almost a hundred percent that he would have gotten better now, you know, how long and those kind of things. And, uh, but he would have died of something else. So that's all that was packed into that 15 page deposition. Wow. Okay. Was yeah. Talk about this is one of the miracles of modern medicine. He said that to me one time on the phone and I said, okay, we're going to remember that. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, um, I, I, we, we've handled, you know, some delay in diagnosis cases in, to me and, and not, you know, not specific to chronic myeloid uh, le- leukemia, but the delay 
didn't seem all that long to me. And so I thought there might be an argument that they yeah. that they say, well, he, you know, this was far enough along that he was going to, you know, go to acute myoblastic leukemia stage and, and pass on anyways. Or it may have taken us three months to get a, right. To an oncologist, yeah. you know, I right. mean, uh, I had anticipated some of that, but clearly whoever they had reviewed the case told them you need yeah. to settle it. And that, that's one of the things about, dealing with an assistant U.S. attorney who's going to try the case on the real facts and not go make up some right creative approach. <laughs> yeah, that was totally my experience. Yeah. yeah, that was totally my experience, too. I don't know, like, the right word for it. I feel like you call it, like, less adversarial. Like, it's not like they're not good lawyers, but it's definitely more like, I don't know if it comes from that sort of prosecutor mindset, but... It just, it felt like a lot less of this sort of BS. Exactly. Sorry, sorry, Dan Huff, if you're listening, but it just yeah. felt like a lot less BS. <laughs> I'll tell you, go, go ahead, Don, sorry. I think it, that's a, their slogan is justice is served, you know, the government wins if justice is served or something along those lines. Uh, very good lawyer. I mean, there's no question right. I learned about and I think I put it in my opening statement. You know, he's a great guy. He's just the messenger. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, I actually in that that postal case, I, I had sort of the opposite experience. I mean, you know, uh, nice enough guys out, outside the courtroom, but they, they defended it very hard and really went after our clients. Um, you know, and it was a case where a, a postal truck had basically pulled out in front of our client. He they tried to avoid him, lost control, hit a hit a fence and, and basically a, a fence post came in through the windshield and hit our pregnant mother right in the, in the stomach and then uh, end up causing severe brain damage. But they were, um, they, they, they went after our clients very hard and, 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 um, and really defended the case. Uh, but the one thing I'll never forget is their accident reconstructionist who had sort of, you know, kind of pushed his opinions way too far and the judge, uh, as they were doing the direct of the accident recon, the judge starts cross-examining him from the bench. <laughs> and then after he's done cross-examining him, looks at the, at the, at the uh, AUSAs and says, uh, you do understand, you know, the requirements for getting an expert witness into evidence, don't you? And, um, and I, I, I still went up and crossed, but I, after he did that, I, there was definitely a lot less that I needed to do. <laughs> You gotta love it. Yeah. Youch. Yeah. Well, I do think it's one of those things that you, that I, that I'm, and I'm, I don't know what the lawyers were like in your case, Steve, but I feel like it took me a little while of practicing and, and learning from, fr from Steve and you guys that like, you can, you can eventually find an expert that's going to say whatever you want them to say, like, right. <laughs> but that's not what you want. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now 
Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, Don, is so the date of this um, of this hearing looked like it was June 22nd of 2020. Uh, so that would have been after the pandemic sort of shut down. Was this done in person? And, um, you know, what kind of things did you have to do because of the pandemic? Yeah, great, great question. Um, the judge said all our hearings were on the phone, but he said we're going to do it in person. Uh, one person at a time on the elevators. They had everything uh, set up. They had a separate conference room for all the witnesses. And I explained that it would be family. And then we had one other witness. Um, the funny part there was uh, Mrs. Mathis points out that the son is working at Publix at the grocery store, and there's no way she's sharing a conference room, a witness room with him. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Uh, but uh, but uh, everybody you know, they wiped down the witness stand between witnesses and, and, uh, everybody wore masks. Um, the, uh, and it went really well. The only breach of protocol I think was after the verdict came down that, you know, defense came over and shook my hand, which, you know, oh. turned that down, but, uh, yeah. uh, it was, uh, it was, it was, you know, done very well. And, and with a lot of distancing and it helps to be in federal court cause it's big and there's lots of room. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. So uh, one thing I yeah. did that I didn't do, I meant to mention, was that I did my own IT. I had trial pad. <laughs> okay. And I put up my own photos because the simplicity and because of COVID, 
Um, but next time I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> well, I, it went well it's just one more thing to worry about you don't need to be worried about so yeah exactly well it, you know and uh, it, i mean maybe in that case where you where you were you know primarily talking about damages maybe it was you know not not so much that you had to do i i wouldn't trust myself doing my own tech and and, and there are lawyers who do it who do it uh, great. One of the guests that we've had on um, was uh, Lloyd Bell out of Atlanta. I know he does all of his own tech work at trial and does it well. Um, I just, you know, there's enough to worry about at trial that I usually like to leave that to somebody else. Yeah, let's use uh, legal technology services, whatever. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice. They're going to love that little promo there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm not like a good multitasker. Like I, if I'm texting, I'm not listening to what you're saying to me. Like if I'm uh, like, so I'll remember that next time you're texting while I'm talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, except unless it's Steve, cause then I know it's right. really important. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Steve, if I'm on my phone while you're talking to me, I'm just taking notes that's about right. the pearls yeah, of, of wisdom of that you're, you're I'm, offering. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the U.S. attorney's office has, you know, massive IT support. You know, they're willing to, they're, they're putting on, you know, antitrust cases. So, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Intimidating. Yeah. That, so, so you didn't have any tech issues or anything. It was just more like you've already got enough on your plate. Just kind of too much. I was just showing the pictures. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that it all worked out, but it's, you know, trial pads a good program and, yeah. news and uh, there was a little glitch, but I went the Friday before trial to make sure it all worked. And yeah. Yeah. I and how, so, and how many days did it end up taking the just trial? One, just one. Just, oh, that's awesome. We wow. Started and put on the witnesses and uh, all the depositions went into evidence. We didn't read them. We let the judge read them. Got it. And so then yeah. how long did you have to wait like between that and, and then the, the order? He went out for about 30 minutes and came back in and dictated uh, on the record. Okay. What I sent you. So he dictated his order. And the one thing I love about federal court is there's a judgment comes out like right away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's none of this trying to get the judge to sign a final yeah. issue we sometimes run into. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. Of course, the Veterans Administration took their entire, I think it seemed like three years, but I think it's 90 days or 60 days, whatever it is they have to appeal. And then and then they call up and say, we're not going to appeal and we need wiring instructions for the funds. And so we start checking the bank account. But that's just a mirage because it's another two months before they actually. Oh, send absolutely. Uh, the, the, so once we tried that case against the post office, so we, we reached a settlement after the judge, uh, you know, came out with his uh, judgment and um, just to get them to pay what they had already agreed to pay took months because there's no, they're, they're basically it's you, just, you know, the, the federal government moves slowly and there's really nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Well, ours, ours was an offer of judgment. So we were like, this is, I mean, you did an offer of judgment, like you have to pay. I mean, it ended up being a really good amount where it was a really tough decision for us, especially because it was going to be a, a bench trial and we didn't know damages wise what a judge would do with it. And so, but we were like, you're basically saying you have this money, you know, and then they wanted all this extra time to pay it after like we were totally up against the wall with the offer of judgment. Yeah. yeah. Still I mean, and, and honestly, <laughs> when you're dealing with the Department of Justice, when you, if you when you complain to them about that, they're like, "Yeah, well, who are you going to call about it?" I mean, <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do about <laughs> yeah, it? Exactly. 
And the interest rate is like 0.01. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I'm just going to whine about it. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is is the two uh, the, the two grandkids uh, that became the son and daughter. Um, we haven't really talked about that, but it, but their their mother had been killed tragically in a car accident when they were I think two years old and maybe uh, uh, nine, eight or eight or nine months or something like that. But the the actual formal adoption didn't go through until December of 2017. So literally a couple of weeks before all of this happened. Um, and so if that formal adoption hadn't gone through, they would not have been, uh, statutory survivors. Is that right? Correct. So they would have had zero claim. Correct. Yeah. Florida is very unfair in that, that regard. Um, yeah. and, uh, and it was, you know, some, they wanted to, you know, they called them mom and dad. They'd never been raised they wanted to adopt them but it required the father surrendering his rights so it took a while to get that to happen and then when it did they adopted and then and then tragically uh you know he, he gets sick and passes away within the year yeah i mean yeah. we just saw a picture too in, in one of the um maybe like the trial memo that you did and what a cute, I mean, really cute kids and what a cute family, you know, they look a little different. I think you mentioned they called it being raised by dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah the daughter <laughs> wrote an article about being raised by dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> so funny, but, the, but they look like such a cute family unit. Yeah. Yeah. But to, you know, I've got grandkids and they're fabulous but I love being able to say, but what did I hear once uh, somebody uh, told me once is if I had known how uh, fun grandkids were, I would have had them first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah I that, but I, I, you know, take them in a heartbeat, but they're, uh, right. <laughs> they're very yeah. How do I, how can I go about getting grandkids without having kids? That's going right. to be my, uh, <laughs> Can you adopt grandkids? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There actually is a community of uh, grandparents raising grandchildren. There's a Oh, wow. And they all met and had outings and stuff. It's kind of cool. Oh, really? Yeah, Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. So that was was a thing. Yeah, that's special. Well, um, as far as I, I assume not, but, uh, but as far as like, um, you know, figuring out, you know, how you were going to present your damages in this case, did you, did you do anything like focus groups or anything like that since you're going in front of a, a federal judge in, and not a jury? Did not do focus groups. Um, thought about, you know, the judge where he is in life and where, you know, that kind of thing. Um, his kids are older and, uh, but, you know, some of these, uh, just kind of thought about that, but I, I, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you've, it's not like you're picking him. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, not this judge. Real, Next one. Yeah. Him, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. A random choice. It's, uh, yeah. I, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just thought about it. What, what would resonate with me? What would resonate with him? I think so. Yeah. And I guess, and I guess the, the doctor, Dr. Cooper Dunn, she didn't take the stand or anything. Or, yeah. she, she did not come to trial. I had subpoenaed her, which I think may have been the impetus for dropping 
the liability claim. I, I thought they were going to make me prove it uh, anyway. We were, I think they finally decided to do that the day or two before we uh, took the deposition for use at trial of my uh, standard of care expert. Uh, but also, I think the fact that we had subpoenaed her to trial and would have, uh, you know, there's just no excuse for this. And right. They didn't even bring her to trial, which I thought was smart. Yeah. Got it. Well, I mean, in some ways I thought this, you know, in a, because I mean, you're right that if you're, if, if this wasn't the federal government that you would have been fighting this case, but in some ways, you know, not fighting on the liability part of it and just keeping it about damages is, is a, is not a, a, bad defense i mean it's a, it's a smart way to go about it especially you know unfortunately with your client uh mr mathis did have some ha, have some health issues um yeah. and there were some there's some other verdicts and i this was part of when i made my initial demand there have been some other federal courts claims act awards of five hundred thousand, i think seven fifty, right. uh you know for pain and suffering under similar circumstances or even younger people and so this was, you know, they were trying to keep it in that range, um, you know, and uh, so I, I yeah. thought they, they ended up arguing that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The judge distinguished it by talking about how unique this family was and how unique these circumstances was, which was protect, protecting himself from. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and uh, I mean, you could see from his transcript uh, that he was protecting himself very smartly. And you know, after he sort of, you know, made you know said that liability and causation had been uh, stipulated, he just he made sure to ask all the lawyers, you know, you, you have any problem with that? Do you want to change anything with that? You know, and and everybody said, no, we you know we understand. <laughs> so, yeah, he's a very good judge. Yeah, very, very good judge. So that was good. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah. Well, um, well, Don, this has been just a really good uh, discussion. Is there anything else you want to talk about, about uh, this case, Mathis versus the United States of America, or just Federal Tort Claims Act cases uh, that we haven't discussed already? No. I, the, the only thing is, with respect to Federal Tort Claims Act cases, is you're required to try your, especially in my field, medical malpractice case, to a jury that is a judge or a lawyer. Um, it's almost like uh, some of the practice groups now are putting together these arbitration requirements. Yes. Like, you know, I pick someone, you pick one, they pick the third. I'm trying my malpractice, medical malpractice case to three lawyers. Their worst fates. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was, uh, I don't, I take these cases with enthusiasm because I think they're, they're good. No, absolutely. Well, I will say, um, so my, the case that I tried, uh, which was in the, uh, up in Athens, Clark, uh, County in the middle district of Georgia, it was a real, he said, she said type of argument The the postal truck driver was claiming one thing happened and my clients were claiming a different thing happened. So the judge actually impaneled an advisory jury, uh, didn't tell them they were advisory, um, but brought 12 people in and we tried the, just the liability phase, not the damages, but tried just the liability phase, uh, to the jury. And, um, and then they came back with their verdict in our favor, uh, you know, which was, you know, we were very happy with. And then, um, and then he, and then after that, after he dismissed the jury, he turned to the U S and said, you know, you might want to think about settling this. He's like, I'm not bound by what these 12 people just said, but this is 12 
you know, unbiased people who just all found against your client. So you might want to think about seeing if you can get this case settled. And they still didn't. We still had to go try the damages to the judge. But, uh, <laughs> 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 so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I thought it was it was actually really cool that he had uh, that he had done that, and, uh, and and it really made sense because um, it really was, you know, just two different. Uh, versions and and who you believed was you know basically who is gonna who's gonna prevail. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, harder with COVID. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I guess on that note, are, are you hearing in Florida that you're going to start jury trials anytime soon? They are starting them back up. We have one in uh, May. Um, wow. So there have been a few already. Uh, you know, Florida. It's kind of like Georgia. Our governor doesn't. Yeah really believe in this disease so we, <laughs> right. but the courts are still being cautious and yeah nervous about who's going to show up for jury duty and who isn't yeah 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 well, i was actually on a trial calendar for today uh in a case um and um so and i told the judge i was ready to go and i wanted to try it and um and he just uh wrote me back and said he wasn't going to try a case right now and that we'd get on the earliest one that we could but it wasn't going to be now so for my cases are all queuing up so it's busy uh, next year that, that's exactly right i mean towards the end of this year and next year i think we're going to have a heavy trial load so uh you know that's just the way it'll be yeah and of course all the criminal cases go first here because of yeah. the yeah so. yeah yeah, exactly. Well, I want to remind everybody that we have been talking about the case of, uh, of Mathis versus United States of America involving the uh, the wrongful death of Ronald Mathis. Uh, it was the result of the case was a four million seven hundred twenty five thousand nine hundred sixty one dollars and seventy six cents uh, judgment um, in a federal tort claims act case. So it was tried in front of a judge and ruled on by a judge. Uh, and it was tried in the Northern District of Florida in the Tallahassee Division. And we have been talking to Don Hinkle of Hinkle and Ferran, who is in Tallahassee, Florida. And you can look up Don at HinkleFerran.com. That's H-I-N-K-L-E-F-O-R-A-N.com. Um, Don, thank you so much for your time. And been a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. 
Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.